This program deals with sensitive topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Michael J. From a very early age, music became the center of my world. But as my father always said, you don't choose music, it chooses you. This is Rock and Roll War Stories. This podcast has been designed to be listened to like an audiobook from beginning to end. The story isn't linear and will jump back and forth through time, but you'll be a whole lot less lost if you start at episode one and work your way forward from there. Also, if you've been enjoying this program so far, Please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a short review if you're so inclined. It would help the show immensely. Thank you in advance. As a special surprise and bonus for everyone who has listened to all eight hours plus of this podcast, there will be a newly remixed and remastered version of another Exploding Boy song at the end of this episode from the Communication is Dead record, which was our second full-length release. So stick around past the end credits if you'd like to hear a little bit of what the band sounded like in full flight at the absolute top of our game and in our heyday in the mid-1990s. Episode 16, The End of the Beginning, Part 2. There has to be an invisible sun. It gives its heat to everyone. There has to be an invisible sun that gives us hope when the whole day's done. The police. Invisible sun. One. Daughtry. People used to tell me all the time that I resembled former American Idol rock singer Chris Daughtry. In fact, the first night Chris appeared on Idol, I was playing a gig at my regular spot, Court of Heroes, in Gainesville, Florida and my phone started blowing up with blurry and half-blurry flip phone photos from friends all over the country who were watching that night and taking photos of their TV screens. The messages were all somewhat the same. Your doppelganger is on American Idol tonight. Holy shit, man, you're on American Idol. I didn't pay much attention to it. He was a rock singer with a shaved head. There are a ton of us and we all kind of look alike anyway. I shaved my head in 1994, shortly before it was cool to do it. Truth be told, I never liked my hair even back when I had it. I was never really comfortable with it, going all the way back to when I was a kid. It always just felt like a giant hassle to me, and it never did what I wanted it to do. After an ill-fated trip to a Buffalo Bills football game where a few of my uncles sat directly behind me, and noticed a bald spot and began teasing me, I thought, that's it. I had long hair all one length well past my shoulders at the time. I cut most of it off not long after that, and the resulting short preppy look wasn't really doing me any favors at all. There was nothing cool about it. I was at a Toad the Wet Sprocket show with Anthony from Exploding Boy, and 
Singer Glenn Phillips walked out on stage that night with a buzz cut so short that he almost looked bald. That was the light bulb moment for me. I knew Anthony had a set of clippers at his house. I just looked at him and said, Hey man, can we go to your house after this and use your clippers? I want you to shave my head like that. And I pointed to the stage and the Glenn Phillips buzz cut. Anthony lit right up. Are you serious? Yeah, man, as a heart attack. It's time to get rid of all of it. So we went back to Anthony's parents' house after the show. He got out the clippers, snapped on a number one guard, and from that moment forward, I never had much more hair than that. Not long after, I began using a razor on it, and I never looked back. I still love it, and thankfully my head has a shape that works for it. I'm not sure what I would have done otherwise. After a while, the comparisons to Chris Daughtry became incredibly annoying, and a bit uncomfortable also, because I got it all the time, every single place I went. That, as well as the fact that people then started telling me that I sounded like Chris. I didn't see it or hear it, not one bit, and I still don't. I found out that one of my longtime friends, another Rochester musician named Elvio Fernandez, had begun collaborating with Chris and his band. Elvio had worked with another Idol contestant named Ace Young and had met Chris through his connection with Ace. A few years later, I found out that Daughtry was going to be coming to Gainesville to play, so I figured, what the hell? I reached out to Elvio and I told him I was planning on going to the show to check it out. Elvio immediately offered to get me backstage passes to go say hi to Chris after the gig. I went to the show with my girlfriend at the time, and the whole time she just kept saying, you know, you guys actually don't look all that much alike, but I figured out what it is. It's your mannerisms that are very similar. You move like he does when you're on stage. I, however, was out of my mind uncomfortable at the show because the fact is, the band was just so fucking good. Chris was so fucking good that I thought, that's it. My career is over. I will never amount to anything now because I'll always be compared to this guy, Chris Daughtry. The thing was, my music always leaned more toward a European sound, closer to bands like U2, Tears for Fears, and Coldplay. And Daughtry were straight ahead hard rock, but people see and hear what they want to, I guess. After the show, my girlfriend and I followed some people who we thought were going backstage for the meet and greet. They turned out to be family members of one of the crew guys, and we followed them right out the back door. We ended up standing confused outside the arena near the tour buses. Then the most fucked up thing happened. A large group of fans on a walkway overlooking the area where the loading docks and buses were saw me and all just started yelling, Chris! Chris! Shit, I thought. These people think I'm him too? What the fuck? At that exact moment, as if on cue, Chris's tour manager emerged from a doorway and found us out there. Are you Elvio's friend? Yeah, man. Okay, cool. Come with me. Chris is waiting for you. And he escorted us backstage. Chris walked out of his dressing room. We said a quick hello. He was in the middle of a phone interview that he had put on hold to say hi to us and snap a quick photo. He was very gracious and very nice. We chatted for a second about both knowing Elvio and I told him I really enjoyed the show and that was that. 
LVO had apparently told Chris that I was getting compared to him, and we had a brief exchange regarding that as well. Both of us agreed that we just didn't see it. We are both exactly the same height, around 5'8", and at the time we had similar builds. Although Chris has gone on to work out a lot and is completely ripped right now, so any other resemblance people might have seen earlier has now thankfully gone right out the window. Not that I'm not in shape, I am. I'm just not in that kind of shape. I will post the photo of Chris and I from Gainesville on my socials for you all to take a look at if you like and decide for yourself if we look alike or not. LVO was doing some writing with Chris and the two had put together a really killer tune called Crazy. The song, which is still one of my favorite Daughtry tunes, would end up on the band's third album, Break the Spell and Elvio would eventually be asked to join the band on keyboards, backing vocals, and additional guitar. He's been in the band ever since and has co-written and produced a bunch more material for the band. On Elvio's very first tour with Daughtry, the band was booked to play in Tampa, Florida, so I decided to make the two-hour trip from Gainesville to go watch the show. Elvio was kind enough to hook me up with a ticket to the gig and also told me that the band had a day off prior to the show and asked me if I wanted to come and hang out with them. I definitely didn't want to impose or be in the way. I never want to be that guy. But LVO told me they'd all just most likely be lounging around their hotel by the pool. He ran it by Chris and the guys, and they all told him to definitely have me come by. So I booked myself a hotel room close to the venue and decided to make a mini vacation out of it. I met all the other band members that day who could not have been more gracious or more kind. As promised, we had a pool day together, and all went to dinner that night. Chris even picked up the bill for everything, which I thought was incredibly classy. I've since made friends and keep in touch sporadically with all the other guys, via text and mostly online. Guitarists Brian Craddock and Josh Steely, bassist Josh Paul, who's no longer in the band, and ex-drummer Robin Diaz who now plays with 90s alternative band Live. All great guys. I even got to play guitar on a U2 song, Sunday Bloody Sunday, with Chris Daughtry on vocals, Josh Paul on bass, and drummer Rich Redmond, who plays with Jason Aldean, at a Nashville event called Loud Jams, which incidentally is run by my friend Tom Hurst, who I've talked about in previous episodes. I will share video of this performance on my socials as well. One of my favorite moments at the Tampa Daughtry Hang happened after dinner and shortly before I made my way back to my hotel for the night. LVO told me that he and Chris were going to jump in the hot tub for a little while and I was welcome to join them. Sure, I thought. Why the hell not? I'm on vacation. And more time to hang with LVO was cool with me too. I knew that the band would be very busy the next day with their show and we wouldn't get much time to hang out without a three-ring circus surrounding everything. So, the three of us, LVO, Chris Daughtry, and I, hopped in a rather large hotel hot tub and just hung out and talked music for a while. After we'd been there for a little bit, a couple ladies, who were also obviously hotel guests, came out and hopped in the hot tub with us. I had slid out and was sitting on the edge of the tub with just my feet in. Chris was on my left and LVO was on my right. One of the women was looking at Chris for a while and she said, Hey, you know what? You look just like that guy from American Idol. What's his name? Chris Daughtry? Chris just looked at her expressionless and said, Oh yeah, 
I get that a lot. He didn't even crack a smile, but he gave Elvio and I a kind of sly sideways look. This was made far funnier to me by the fact that from where I was sitting, I could see what the ladies couldn't, which was the giant tattoo across Chris's back and shoulders that read Daughtry in bold letters. The ladies, funny enough, never caught on and just kept talking to one another. Every single time I've gotten a chance to be around Chris or any of his band members, past and present, and it's been many occasions at this point, they've always been warm, welcoming, gracious, down-to-earth, and very cool. I'm sure some of this is due to the fact that I'm friends with Elvio, but either way, they're a great bunch of guys, and they're one of the best and most genuinely talented rock bands out there today. Two, Boston. It is Thursday, September 21st, 2023. I am standing on an enormous stage with a huge T-shaped thrust at the front at TD Garden in Boston, waiting to do a sound check with Jameson Rogers and the rest of the band. We are the direct support act for country superstars Old Dominion, and this is the first of three large arena shows we'll be doing with them over the next few days. The capacity here is 19,600. That is incidentally 100 more than the capacity at Madison Square Garden. We will go on to play Mohegan Sun Arena in Uncasville, Connecticut on Friday, September 22nd, capacity 10,000, and UBS Arena in Elmont, New York on Saturday, September 23rd, capacity 18,500. The first concert I ever went to see was Canadian rock trio Rush on October 4th, 1984 in my hometown of Rochester, New York at the Rochester War Memorial. It's called Blue Cross Arena now and the capacity there is 10,662. I just remember thinking that the War Memorial was enormous at that Rush show. The energy from the crowd was palpable and utterly electric. I could not get enough. I would go on to see at least a dozen or more shows there throughout the course of my early life, and it was always the same level of excitement for me. Here I was, about to play a show in Boston to a bit less than double the amount of people in attendance at the first live rock show I ever saw. My brain was absolutely on fire. When we pulled into TD Garden that morning, I made my way off the bus immediately. I knew this was a momentous occasion, and I planned on doing everything in my power to take it all in to the fullest extent possible. The crew was already busy flying the enormous PA system and assembling the stage. The arena looked a lot more like a construction site than a concert venue, but it was taking shape slowly but surely. I walked up to one of the mid-level sections at the back of the arena, found a seat, and watched the crew work tirelessly to build the event space. I was so overcome with emotion, I just sat there and I cried. And I thought back to seeing that first live show. Except tonight, I would finally be on stage in an arena. This was the culmination of roughly 37 years of struggle, sacrifice, practice, failures, lessons learned, countless miles traveled, close calls, more failures and somehow never letting the flame of my dream burn completely out. 
Although I certainly thought about throwing in the towel on many occasions. Too many to mention. I had played large places before. I'd also played to many thousands of people before this. Some of the outdoor summer festivals I'd played in previous years with JMO and the guys were sometimes 40,000 people and up. And when I played Gator Growl 2002 in Gainesville at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, there were nearly 60,000 people there. I'd also played a few arenas, mostly half-empty ones. But I'd never played a full arena, and never as a direct support act. As the direct support act, we would be going on right before Old Dominion for those three nights, so most of the crowd would be there in their seats and ready to go. So what is it about an arena gig that's so special? I've struggled to make sense of it. I think for me, the vibe is simply much different than other gigs. Some of my favorite shows I've ever seen by some of my favorite bands have also been in arenas. An arena is just large enough to feel significant, but yet it's somehow intimate at the same time. To make the first night in Boston even more special, my friend and old Gainesville acoustic duo partner Miguel and his wife and two daughters made the trip out to see the show. Miguel and I played some really small, intimate little gigs in and around the Gainesville bars and clubs back in the day, and it meant everything to have he and his family there. It was a full circle moment for me in so many ways. Even the sound check was a magical experience. Standing there on that empty stage looking out and playing to a darkened arena gave me chills. I think it felt the same for everyone in the band and for Jameson as well, although they had done a full arena tour with Luke Combs just prior to COVID, and on that tour they were the first of three bands for the night. In that slot, you might get one or two songs at the end of your set where the arena is full or slightly getting there. Direct support, however, is where you want to be, for sure. If only every night could be just like this, I'd never take a single second of it for granted. And I didn't, on any of those three amazing nights as direct support to Old Dominion. That night in Boston at TD Garden, one of my friend Miguel's daughters happened to capture a very special brief moment that happened between Jameson and myself during his song, Mine for the Summer. Jamo told the crowd, All right, everyone, pull out your cell phones and let's light this place up. Standing there with Jameson at the edge of the thrust, looking out at a large portion of the capacity crowd of 19,600 people, all lighting up their cell phones in unison, literally took my breath away. Jamo saw my face out of the corner of his eye and he gave my shoulder a light hit, as if to say, Can you believe we're here doing this? I'll post the little three-second video on my socials so you can all check it out if you want. You can also scroll down further on my Instagram and see more footage from these three incredible nights. Some of the very best of my entire life so far. Three. Just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. So, how did I get here, you may ask? How did I end up in Jameson Rogers' band? Several years prior, just after COVID, when things had started to open up again, I had every intention of continuing on playing with Freddie Jones' band. But life, as they say, had other plans for me. 
I got a text one day as the music business was starting to slowly open back up from my dear friend Adam Flomeyer. Adam is the other guitarist and band leader for Jameson Rogers that I played with for the past three years or so. Adam was texting me to see if I could recommend some bridge saddles for a Fender Telecaster that he owned. I met Adam early on in my Nashville years. He and I got thrown together on a series of gigs with a regional female country singer for some van and trailer cover gigs in some of the states surrounding Tennessee. Adam and I instantly hit it off. We shared the same utterly goofy, absurd sense of humor and a love of all things guitar. In musical terms, we worked very well together also. Adam picked up right where I left off and vice versa. In regards to the guitar parts Adam was texting about, I told him, man, I've literally got a bin full of those exact saddles here at my place. Why don't you just come by and I'll give you a handful to take with you? I'm not using them and I don't need them. So he came by later that day with his little daughter Levi and we caught up on life coming out of COVID, standing in my kitchen and we just kind of hung out for a while. Adam had been responsible for subbing me into Jameson's band for the first time in the early part of his career before he had a record deal when there were some gigs that he just couldn't do. After that, we would do gigs as a guitar duo backing Jamo, and once his manager saw what the band was like with two guitarists, he pushed for things to stay that way, and I was just very happy to be included. For me, Jamo's music always had that little bit of something extra special that some other artists I played with didn't. And I'm not shitting on anyone else's music. There was just something about Jameson's material and him as a person that connected with me a bit stronger than everyone else. I even helped Jameson with one of his early showcases for Sony. Just he and I and two acoustic guitars in front of a bunch of label folks at a room at Sony. He didn't end up getting signed that day, but it was a step I never got to with Exploding Boy, and I was honored and excited to be there, and I told Jamo as much that day. Around that time, I made the mistake of taking an offer to play with a Canadian country artist at a higher rate of pay and a bunch of upcoming dates, and I'd left Jameson's organization as he didn't really have much on the books at the time. In this, I learned a valuable lesson. Never follow the money. Every single time I've followed money, and not my heart or my gut, it has been a huge mistake. That is by far the hardest part of being a sideman. You never know who or what is going to take off or what isn't. Every single thing in the music business is one gigantic crapshoot, and it can be incredibly soul-crushing. As luck would have it, not even a few months after I had taken the Canadian gig and was freezing my dick off in the Great White North, Jameson secured a record deal with Columbia and was on the Luke Combs tour. At this point, things were almost comical on my end. Giant billboards started popping up all over Nashville with Jamo's face on them, advertising almost directly to me that I had completely fucked up. Missed that boat entirely. Let me be very, very clear about something. I'm not making any disparaging remarks about Aaron Goodvin, the Canadian artist I played with. I always really liked Aaron, and I always really liked the guys in his band. We got along great. And Aaron is still a fairly big star up in Canada, quite a successful artist and songwriter. And we did some really big and really fun gigs during those few years. 
We even got to play a festival outside of Paris, France at one point and spent a little time there on either side of the gig. I'd never gotten to play in Europe before that, so it was a really fun and memorable experience. It just wasn't a proper fit for me musically or personality-wise. And that's okay. It's no one's fault. And I wish Aaron and his band well. Sometimes things just don't work. Either way, the entire time I was out of Jameson's band, I was secretly wishing that I'd be able to get back in somehow. I just never thought it was ever going to happen. Until, that is, that day that Adam came over to grab those guitar parts from me. As we were standing in my kitchen, he mentioned almost off the cuff and casually that Jameson was thinking about adding another member. Adam said, We think we want a guitarist, but we also might want someone who can play keys and sing, but we're not really sure yet. Now, I will explain to you where my brain went. Either Adam doesn't remember that I play keys, or he's just not asking me because he doesn't think I can do the job. He definitely knows I play guitar and sing. Jameson probably hates me for leaving a few years ago anyway. And if Adam really wanted me in the band, he'd come right out and ask, right? I was so in my own head at this point that I let Adam leave my house with the guitar saddles I gave him, and I just thought that was that. Until the next day, that is, when I was on the phone with Chris Nix. I recounted the story to him about what Adam had told me, and Chris stopped me mid-sentence. Wait, are you out of your goddamn mind? Let, let me get this straight. One of your best friends is standing in your kitchen telling you that there's a gig opening in a band that you regretted leaving, and you fit the criteria for that gig 1,000%, and you didn't say, I want the gig? Get off the phone with me right now. Call Adam, text Adam, do whatever you need to do, but do it now. Tell him you want that gig. So I texted Adam almost sheepishly. Hey man, in regard to our conversation last night about you guys looking for another member, you do know that I play keys, right? Minutes later, I got a text back from Adam in all caps. You play keys? Holy shit, I forgot. Do you want to audition? I just sent back a yes in all caps. He texted me back. Okay, cool. Let me get in touch with JMO's manager and I'll tell him. I think we're doing auditions either this week or next. Later that same night, I got a very friendly email from Jameson's manager, JP, saying hi and giving me details on an audition. I would have to play one acoustic song, one song on electric, and one song on keys. And the acoustic and electric songs were both things I had played with the band during my previous stint. The only thing I would need to really work on was the song on keys. Piece of cake. At that time, I didn't actually own a keyboard or a synth of any kind, so thankfully I was able to borrow one from my friend Matt Heasley of John Party's band, and I set about learning how to use the thing. I showed up for the audition that day, and it was immediately like being welcomed back into the fold. Hugs all around from all the guys I knew, including JMO's manager. And in the music business, that never fucking happens. Jameson, in particular, gave me an extra warm welcome. 
Not that I thought it would be any different, but there's always the chance of hard feelings when you leave someone's band for another opportunity. I learned that day that JMO doesn't operate like that. He is the living definition of class and kindness. Jameson laughingly told everyone there right before we played the audition songs, Mike played two of the worst gigs of my career with me. He was referring, of course, to two back-to-back gigs we did some years earlier in Huntington, West Virginia. We played at an almost abandoned, run-down old amusement park under a tiny gazebo, and there was no one there. And the people who were there did not give a single fuck about us. The organizer of the show, the guy who booked us, who was on site when we were getting set up, kept trying to talk the place up. You guys see that big pavilion over there? As he pointed to a large covered area that was about 100 yards behind where we were, outside of the gates of the park. Garth Brooks played over there at one point. This amusement park looked honestly like a set straight out of The Walking Dead. It was straight up depressing. And I remember JMO just kept apologizing for it. I promise there will be better gigs. I wasn't worried at all. I just kept thinking, dude, I've played fucking supermarkets and bowling alleys. This is nothing. The worst part about it was, once the first gig was done, we had to go back the next day and do the same exact shit all over again. Thankfully, we can all laugh about it now. Oddly, at the audition that day, I somehow knew the gig was mine to lose from the second we started playing. And after the fact, I found out that they only auditioned two other guys. To his credit, Jameson did not make the decision all by himself. He actually called all the other band members separately and asked them who they thought should be the guy. And thankfully, they all picked me. I got a phone call from Jameson's manager, JP, the next afternoon, and he said, Hey man, do you want the gig? It's yours if you do. Hell yeah, man, I definitely want it. And with that, we were off. We would go on to do a full tour with hit country rock artist Hardy and would open shows for everyone from Darius Rucker to Luke Bryan, Travis Tritt, Jordan Davis, and many others. And it was the absolute time of my life. I learned a very valuable lesson through that whole process. Not just about Nashville politics, but about life in general. If you want something, anything, it doesn't matter what it is. You have to learn how to ask for it. The very worst anyone can say is no. But if you don't ask, you'll maybe never find out. It was the best thing that I ever asked for, and it led to three magical years on the road with an artist and a group of guys in his band and crew that became honest-to-goodness family to me. My brothers. And they still are and will always be no matter what the future holds and no matter where the next road or series of roads takes us. Epilogue. Here is a quote by the great Joe Walsh of the Eagles. As you live your life, it appears to be anarchy and chaos, and random events, non-related events, smashing into each other and causing this situation or that situation, 
And then this happens and it's overwhelming. And it just looks like what in the world is going on. And later, when you look back at it, it looks like a finely crafted novel. But at the time, it doesn't. The whole process of doing this podcast has felt a bit like that to me. I never struggled very much to put any of the pieces of my unique puzzle together. They all just fell together, almost as if the story was writing itself, willing itself into existence. For me, that's how all the greatest ideas seem to feel and flow. This show originally started as an outline in the notes section of my iPhone for what I thought was going to eventually become a memoir. I had been keeping a running list for years now of all the events that made it into the episodes you've heard so far. Somewhere along the way, just a little while ago, I had a light bulb moment, and it seemed that presenting this as a series of short podcast episodes would be a much more immersive, immediate, effective, and entertaining way to get my stories out into the world. It may still take written form at some point down the line, I haven't quite decided yet, but for now, I feel creatively satisfied knowing I was able to get the ball rolling this way. Memory can be a very tricky thing when telling stories. Two people can have memories of the same exact event in drastically different ways, depending on their points of view. I have always prided myself on having what I believe to be a very good memory. This is going to sound like an audacious claim, but I've always thought that I actually remember my very first moments of coming into the world. Maybe not necessarily the moment of my birth, but not really far off from it. This, of course, may have just been a vivid dream or a trick of the mind, but for me, it feels pretty real, so I count it as such. All the stories you've heard are 100% true to the best of my recollection and my knowledge. Thankfully, the other members of Exploding Boy and myself were fastidious in our documentation of our history in the mediums of audio, print, and video over the years. This made it slightly easier for me to represent those certain parts of my journey with a higher degree of accuracy than I otherwise would have been able to had these things not existed. There may have been minor details here or there that were slightly off or small variations in the timeline, but that's to be expected. I told myself a few things at the outset of this undertaking. I promised myself that I would be as open, vulnerable, real, and raw as possible. Things like this don't work otherwise. They fall completely flat. I made a promise to myself to release an episode every consecutive week without fail until all the stories that I wanted to share had been told. I have also written this whole series week by week as I've gone along. The only thing that was planned ahead of time was the outline of stories and a bullet point list of all the things I've wanted to talk about and get out there to all of you, my dear listeners. I also vowed to try my hardest to abandon my usual psychotic level of perfectionism in the telling of these stories. My goal was to just let them be as human and as imperfect as possible. And I hope I've succeeded. It feels to me like I have. As such, like any other works of art, these stories do not belong to me anymore. They belong to all of you now. And to anyone who listens to this series moving forward. And I give them over lovingly and with gratitude. I extend my sincerest and most heartfelt thanks to everyone who has taken time out of their busy schedules 
to listen to my story, to get to know me better. Your attention, your kindness, and your response has left me humbled and very grateful. I would never have imagined that this podcast would have had the impact on all of you that it apparently has, and it means more to me than you'll ever know. Thank you also to the participants of my story, unwilling as all of you may be. I tried my best to represent you all in the kindest and most honest and flattering way possible while still being honest, because, after all, this series has been a love letter to all of you. I would not be the person I am today without each one of you. I'm not sure what's next for me or if this podcast will take a different form and morph into something else, but such is life. The best we can all ever do is to live each moment, stay in the moment, and appreciate the moments for the enormous gifts that they are. I will leave you with a quote by Tony Robbins. Life happens for you, not to you. I wish all of you the very best. Thank you again so much for taking this ride with me. It has been my pleasure and my honor to share my stories with all of you. Rock and Roll War Stories was conceived, written, and read by me, Michael J. Follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Michael J. M-I-S-T-E-R M-I-C-H-A-E-L-J. Theme music for Rock and Roll War Stories composed and performed by Michael J. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved. And now, as promised, here's a song called Screwdriver by Exploding Boy from the Communication is Dead album from 1995, completely remixed and remastered for 2024.